Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for your love and your methods. And, and boy, oh boy, Lord, are we in an exciting time in earth's history. And we so desperately need your spirit and your agencies to be working, to open avenues of communication, to enlighten our minds, to settle and seal us into your kingdom and your methods. Give us wisdom and discernment as we study today that we can identify your where you're leading and how you're working and that we can align ourselves with your mission and carry out your purposes here. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing Lesson 10 in the Quarterly Education, and the title is Education in Arts and Sciences. And it's talking about teaching these things from a biblical perspective. And what does it mean to teach things from a biblical perspective? Well, the first paragraph says, education includes what has been called the arts and sciences. But when we learn to teach the arts and sciences from a biblical perspective, what does that imply? Are we simply offering select Bible verses that relate to a particular aspect of modern medicine or uh, art history, for example? Uh, in so, uh, so doing, we can relate our practical lessons to the amazing power of God in creating our complex world. But... Simple incorporation of scripture in a textbook lesson is only a small part of true education. True uh, true education is a salvific, is salvific and redemptive. You know, I would ask as a psychiatrist, what does it mean to practice psychiatry from a biblical perspective? And and, uh, what I have found as I've asked many Christian mental health practitioners, you're a Christian, yeah. And you, you. How do you incorporate your Christianity into your practice of psychiatry? And my experience has been most don't. Uh, it, it, the, the, the bottom line is they will say things like, "Well, I support my patient's Christian journey. That's how I do that. I don't undermine my patient's belief in God. That's how I. That's how I incorporate it." I um, validate the, their belief in God and encourage them to continue their, their church uh, experience. Uh, in other words, they're supportive of the patient, but I said, but how are you bringing that into the way you understand their problems and solutions that you're offering them? And the vast majority don't. They continue to practice um, mental health through the humanistic worldview that they were taught in their various educational system. For me, it all starts with diagnosis. If your diagnosis is wrong, your treatments are usually wrong. And the right diagnosis requires first the right understanding of what healthy looks like. If you don't know what healthy looks like, you won't recognize disease when you're looking at it. You might think that's healthy. This happens a lot in our society today, folks. There's a lot of things out there that are actually not healthy, not as God designed, that are being fostered off on our society as actually healthy alternatives. They're not healthy alternatives. I won't go more into that because some might think I'm being political. Not being political. In order to know what's healthy, you've got to know God's original design for life, for relationships, for diet, for all kinds of things. You have to know uh, what God's design laws are like and how they operate. Law of love, law of liberty, worship, truth, exertion, physical laws, gravity, laws of physics, laws of health. You've got to know these. If you don't know these, you won't notice deviations from them. And then when you understand the design laws and God's designs for life and health, then you can see when somebody's unhealthy, you can examine and say, where are they out of harmony with how God built life to operate? Because that will be the root of their problem. But it requires you actually understand God's design before you can figure out where they're out of harmony. 
During my residency, for every hour that I spent studying the various theorists like Freud, Jung, Adler, and others, I actually spent two hours studying the Bible and other Christian uh, authorities in order to formulate my understanding of God's design for our mind and how sin has damaged and disrupted the operations of our mind. And that led to my first book many years later, uh, Could It Be the Simple Biblical Model for Healing the Mind, which would be focusing on our mental faculties and processes, not the brain itself. I continued over time to develop my perspectives and understanding, and that led to the writing of the book we're giving away this month, The God-Shaped Brain, how our beliefs actually change our brain structure and our view of God. And what, you, what I discovered and what the science shows, only God of love, as revealed in Jesus, is healing to us physically. We physically get physical benefits from worshiping a God who's like Jesus. Neurobiologically, the rest of our body, better health, better relationships. Every other God construct other than what Jesus revealed is harmful to us. And, we, and I go into that in, in the book. And what we discover is that sin is always in some way a breaking of God's design for life which is always damaging to us, and without intervention from our Creator will result in our death. And the plan of salvation is to restore. That's why it says, I will, what's the new covenant? Write my law in your heart and mind. Restoring us back to his design for life. That's what it's about. Not, I will put my rules in your brain. I will write my law, how life is designed to work. In practical ways, how does he do that? And how does that apply to what we're dealing with in society today? I will tell you, in practical ways, there are two competing forces for your heart. Truth, love, and liberty. Lies, fear, selfishness, and coercion. They're competing for your, for, for your heart. In order to be free, we're born infected with fear and selfishness. Me first. Fear drives us to act selfishly, not loving others first. The plan of salvation is to eradicate the fear and selfishness by writing in the principles of love. So that we love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as ourself. Greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. This time we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we don't give our lives for others. In other words, we are not self Centered, we're other centered. That is the transformation that comes. How do we get from here to here? Well, first we have to see the truth about Jesus. We have to see the truth about God that we value, and that brings us to a place of trust. We open our heart, and the Holy Spirit comes in, and we now have a new desire and a new motive. But we're not completely free yet. To be free, you have to face the temptation of what you're going to choose. You have to face situations that will tempt you on which side you're going to choose. No temptation is taking you, but that which is common to man. The temptation will not be more than you can handle. But you will have to choose love for God, trusting him with the outcome, distrusting God, love for self, protecting self, hurting others to protect self, lying, cheating, committing any type of crime in order to self to get ahead. This is the temptation. Look at the, and, and this coming Thursday, I'll have a blog on the temptations of Christ and how 
We, he was tempted in every way just like we are. And I'm going to expose how we will face. And what's happening in society today right now, God is permitting many of these things to unfold in the way they're unfolding so that the righteous can recognize injustice. Face the temptation and choose to trust God with the outcome rather than acting through the methods of the world to right a wrong. We'll get to that some more. The second paragraph says we need God's word to inform us, uh, uh, to inform us, inform the teaching of every discipline from humanities to molecular biology. I couldn't agree more. Studying a subject without God's word involved will almost always lead into error. However, what happens if we study God's word without bringing in science and real-life experiences? It leads to error, typically superstitions. And look at all the superstitions and, and things, irrational things taught in Christianity and historically uh, when science was excluded from our understanding of Scripture, from the earth being the center of the universe to the earth being flat and all these types of sillinesses. Um, that have been taught by reading the scriptures without incorporating the reality around us. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, states, There is evidence of the living God in all his creation. What evidence of the living God from creation have you found to be most conclusive, most compelling? Anybody? Just this. This is always. Comp- I, I win the argument with the agnostic every time I show this evidence. DNA. DNA. I think that is all, very powerful. We'll get to the DNA in a moment. Good one. Circle of love built into nature. Testable. The testable laws that we describe that you can show. Complexity of life itself. In the second paragraph. I'm going to read to you what the, what the lesson states, and I want you to tell me, use critical reasoning skills. Here's what it says. Take the human gestation period, for example. Biology tells us that new intelligent human life emerges from one fertilized egg and grows to full gestation after nine months. The marks of a loving creator are all throughout this cycle. The loving kindness of God can be seen in the place of a fetus in the place that a fetus develops right below the steady beating of the mother's heart. As the fetus enlarges, so does the mother's abdomen right out in front of her person. The expectant mother is made always aware of her child, just as our heavenly Father is always aware of his children. Do you find this compelling evidence? No. That we would say this really shows uh, intelligent, creator-loving God. Would, would sharing this paragraph with someone who doesn't believe in God be strong evidence to persuade them? No. Or might they laugh? Might they criticize? Because this is almost superstitious. It is making associations and meanings that are not objective but subjective, projecting in what one wants to see rather than what's actually there. So, let's, I'm going to break it down for us. Is nine months of gestation strong evidence for God versus seven months or ten months? 
they started out with nine months of gestation. Is that somehow relevant? No. Okay. Is human fertilization from one egg versus an elephant or whale fertilization from one egg strong evidence of God? You know, human fertilization from one egg is strong evidence from God. Whales and elephants do that too. Is that strong evidence? Versus, wouldn't it be better evidence that a cat and dog have fertilization from more than one egg and wouldn't fertilization from more than one egg show that there's more children to love and greater diversity of offspring? And wouldn't that even be better evidence than one egg? Does the fact that the uterus grows under the heart indicate God's love? No. Is the pump in the chest the organ of our being that loves others? No. It is not, folks. It is not. No, we love with our minds as we interpret and choose to love, and our brains then respond to those choices to love by firing appropriate circuits which activate various pathways, including the vagal nerve that innervates all of our internal organs, and we feel because of what's happening in the brain, and our body responds in our viscera to that feeling of love, but it is not originating or happening in the viscera, including the heart, it's happening in the brain, and the brain is sending signals to the viscera that causes the heart to beat faster, and the blood pressure to change, and the hands to sweat, and you get that giddy feeling. It's the brain that loves, the mind and the brain that loves, not the pump in the chest. Even in the Bible, the term we might say, I love them with all of my heart. We're not talking the pump. The heart. We're talking your individuality, your core self, which is found in your brain and mind. And Jesus said in Luke 5.22, quote, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Where do we do our thinking in the Bible? In our hearts, not in the pump. This is where we think. This is the heart. So this idea, the baby grows under the heart, shows God's love, this is... How about the idea that the abdomen extends outward so the mother can see and be aware of growing fetus? Is this strong evidence of God's awareness of us? If a human mother is obese and doesn't see her abdomen grow, does that mean she will be less aware of her pregnancy? Yes, it does. Not necessarily. Does it always mean that? Always mean no, 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 it doesn't. But if, but, but it could. So if an obese woman did get pregnant and she's unaware that she's pregnant, which has been reported, it's happened, until she goes into labor, then should we conclude, should she tell her child, well, I was unaware that I was pregnant with you and therefore God is unaware of you? I mean, that's the lesson we should draw, isn't it? Hmm. I find this entire paragraph extremely poor evidence, poorly thought out, weak associations that project meaning, project, project in meanings that are nearly superstitious in nature. It creates associations and attaches meanings not inherent in the experience of the objects themselves. For instance, the critic could say, in addition to everything I've said, the critic could say, well, sometimes a fertilized egg ends in miscarriage and death. Therefore, God is the author of death. That shows what God's really like. Or, sometimes a fertilized egg ends in what's called a molar pregnancy, which is a mass of hair, teeth, bone, all mashed together without any individual or person. Therefore, God is the author of chaos. 
Sometimes a woman is impregnated by rape, so God is the author of rape. I have a real problem with this type of thinking. It is harmful to the Christian message. Now, the much better evidence for me is understanding God's design that it takes two individuals who, when operating as God designed, join themselves together in love and literally give of themselves to procreate a new being in their image. This is objective, measurable, testable, reproducible, and says something quite profound about God. It does take two, male and female, to procreate. It requires of them to actually give something of themselves in order for a new individual to be created. As God designed, it's an act of love and is filled with pleasure and joy, which bonds the two into a closer union. Again, something measurable, experiential, real, says something about God and his design and how he operates. It's even more profound when you break this down. The Bible account of Eve is that she is a being that was created from Adam, a woman that came from man. But then all other human beings are born of a woman who is impregnated by a man, which is bio, and, and all of this is biologically accurate. Adam possesses, men, Adam, possess, possess an X and a Y chromosome. Adam possesses the genetic material necessary to produce a woman. A woman does, today, the way we work, receive two X chromosomes, one from mom and one from dad, but how many actually function? Only one. In every cell of a woman's body, one of those X chromosomes is turned off. Only one X chromosome is necessary for a woman. But a woman does not possess a Y chromosome. You cannot get a man from a woman. You could not have gotten Adam from Eve, but you could have gotten Eve from Adam. Understand how profound this is that in the ancient world, without molecular biology, with everything that you can observe in world, is that all men and women come from a woman, that the Bible writer has the first woman coming from a man. Understand the profound. Present this to a critic and ask them, how, how, how do you explain that? This is not human wisdom. This is not knowledge knowable by the science of the time. And in fact, if you look at every other pagan religion that competes with God's religion, the fertility cults exalt the feminine. We've even put it into earth worship, and we have Mother Earth. Thus, all life comes from a woman, according to the pagan religions. But it's actually not possible for the woman to be the first human being. Even today, you can't have a woman be the source of all life. You have to have a man. Genetic material is simply not there. I think that's quite profound. What do you think? See, this is compelling evidence, testable evidence, historic evidence. And then... As Wendell mentioned, the coded information in our DNA, in our genetic material, 
along with the epigenetic changes that we experience through our own choices in life. The God that we worship alters how our genes are turned on and turned off, the foods that we eat, the behaviors we engage in, these epigenetic changes. And the Bible tells us that we change ourselves and we pass down through the generations, three and four generations, the sins we participate in. And that's exactly what science shows, that your epigenetic changes pass down three and four generations. There is no naturalistic explanation, no no godless explanation for the coded information in our DNA. You can't get coded information without intelligence. And there are no agnostics out there, atheists out there that have an explanation. They admit it. No, we can't explain it. There is no naturalistic explanation for information coding. It's like, it's like taking alphabet and some, th- jumbling it up in a machine and just let it randomly and it falls out into an encyclopedia. It does never happen. It's contrary to the laws of thermodynamics. It just never, you can't get it. To get coded information, you have to have, have intelligence do that. So the coded information in our DNA, profound. Further, Darwin's theory of mutation advancing the species, for anybody who is willing to actually be scientific and examine the evidence, has proven false. It's not theorized. It's proven false. The finches that he uh, used in, as his model... They don't have DNA mutations. They have epigenetic changes that happen within one or two generations, altering beak formations, which is exactly what the Bible teaches. Epigenetic changes passed down, not mutations. There's not one mutation that's been identified that add information to, the, to any species and make them better. All mutations are injuring and damaging and weaken the species. What about the love and bonding a mother experiences with her child after the child is born and how a loving father will sacrifice to protect the welfare of his wife and children? And throughout societies after society after society, even in pagan societies, you still see that the predominant practice is for the men to sacrifice themselves to protect their wives and children throughout all history. Self-sacrificial love. They go to war. They die. They leave the women and children in safe places. So if we're going to use examples from nature, we need to make them objective and not mystical and superstitious, in my view. The lesson asks us to read Romans 1, 18 through 20, which uh, reads, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. I love this. We use it all the time. Mm -hmm. And then the lesson goes on to say, Paul says that those who reject God will be without excuse on judgment day, because because enough about him can be learned from what he has made. In other words, they won't be able to plead ignorance. If we keep reading in Romans, Paul goes on to say that they gave up a knowledge of God and preferred images made with their own hands, and that because of this, their minds became darkened, depraved, and futile. What is being described here? When you give up the knowledge of God, prefer images made with your own hands, and your mind becomes darkened, depraved, and futile, what's being described? The law of worship. This is a design law. By beholding, we become changed. We change characterologically, we change neurobiologically based on what we admire, esteem, watch, ingest into our minds. You cannot avoid it. Everybody's being changed.
constantly being changed, depending on what we're esteeming, valuing, worshiping, and choosing to believe. It changes us. Understanding this reality then, that the God we worship changes us, then what is the judgment that the lesson is talking about? They have no excuse in the judgment. No excuse. Can't say, Your Honor, I had no clue. Never heard that one before. I'm ignorant. That's what they're saying. So what is this? It's simply, is this a legal process, this judgment? Many say it is. You had it. The evidence is there. You chose to ignore it. Therefore, you're guilty. Can't say I didn't know. It was posted. Don't walk on the grass. It was Speed limit was posted. You can't say I didn't know the speed limit was posted. You're guilty. Is that what we're talking about here? Or is the judgment simply the accurate diagnosis of hearts and minds? What does it say in Hosea? You've worshipped worthless idols and become worthless yourself. Let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is filthy be filthy still. When the wheat are separated from the tares, or metaphorically, the sheep from the goats, what makes the difference between a wheat and a tare? Is it what's written in a book? Or are they constitutionally, weeds and wheat are not the same thing? Are sheep and goats the same thing? Or are they inherently different animals? So what makes the difference in the judgment a judicial process examining books or the actual condition of the beings? They are righteous, they're not. That's what makes the difference. Well, this whole question of judgment becomes argued back and forth because the scripture and the word judgment has many meanings. And therefore in scripture there's multiple judgments and types of judgment that people confuse. And if you confuse them, then you are uh, maybe taking judgment in one place that means one thing and applying it somewhere else where you should be using the other definition. So let's just run through them very quickly, the four judgments. At least four, four judgments. First judgment, Romans 3, verse 4. Quoting out of the New King James Version. Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Who's being judged according to Paul here? God. First judgment is our judgment and the universe's judgment of God. Because Satan lied about God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. We must do exactly what Elijah called the people to do at Carmel. If the Lord is like Yahweh, worship him. If he is like Baal, worship him. What was he calling the people to do? Make a a choice based on a judgment, right? They had to judge. Is, who, is, who is God like? First judgment. And this is the judgment, I will tell you, that is, in my view, primarily, but, but maybe this passage has a dual meaning, but it's the primary meaning of the first angel's message. Fear God and give glory to him. Be in awe of him. Reveal him in your character because the, because the hour of his judgment has come. Not the hour of his judicial magistrate, the hour of his judgment, the hour that we are finally going to worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all of them, judge him to be creator and whose laws are design laws, and stop worshiping the dark ages imperial dictator who's the source of pain and suffering. That's the first judgment. God is calling at the end of time for the people to make a right judgment and worship the creator. That's it. 
It's not judicial. And many, uh, many people in the Adventist church who love this text have presented the wrong judgment. They presented a judicial process in heaven rather than the right judgment that God is calling a people to, to make a right judgment about him and reject all this imperial dictator stuff that has infected Christianity. That's the first judgment. Second judgment, Malachi 3, 1 through 5. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, and says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like silver and gold. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. This is a judgment that happens when the Lord comes to his temple to cleanse the temple. This is the judgment that we read about when he comes to the people in judgment This actually has multiple nuanced meaning, but it all has the same focus. It's about cleansing people from sin. That's what this judgment is. He comes to cleanse the people, to purge the dross from the silver and the gold, which is us. That's what he comes for through history. This is this judgment. Okay, it has a culmination, but it's a process. And so when you read about God's judgments in Old Testament times, this is, this is part of it. He comes to judgment. And what is the judgment? It is the diagnosis of what is wrong and then the judgment of the action needed to cleanse, to heal, to offer remedy. And these are the judgments of the flood, of Sodom and Gomorrah, of all the actions through the Old Testament. It's also Jesus' work in the heavenly sanctuary when he comes to examine the records and what are recorded in the records reality names 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 you read the scripture over and over again name recorded in the record name recorded in the record multiple places through scripture you'll find name recorded in the record and what in the bible is a name representative of character your character your individuality is recorded there and so he comes to cleanse the characters of his people preparing us to stand in his presence before the second coming and that requires judgment of two types one he judges who individually has trusted him and opened their heart ah you have let me in i judge you've given me permission to fix the damage Oh, I judge that you have shut your heart to me. You won't let me in. You've denied me. So the first is judging, concluding, evaluating, assessing, diagnosing who will let him work in their hearts and who won't. And then the second is examining the character and identifying any residual elements that we freely want him to remove but maybe haven't been fully removed. Thief on the cross gave his heart to the Lord and died shortly thereafter. How much maturing of character did he experience in his life? But in this judgment, Christ goes to his record, his individuality, his character, stored in a digital database of some sort, and examines, yes, I have been given authority and authorization to operate and work in this individual. First judgment of that aspect. 
And as I examine, yes, he's given me a brain. He wants all the defects removed. And I examine the lines of code and I remove everything out of harmony with my design. I write my law, my perfect character of love into this individual who's given me permission. Thus, when he rises, he doesn't rise a thief in rebellion who's, selfishness, who's selfish and afraid of God who wants to steal. He rises somebody who loves God and others more than self and is loyal and faithful and trustworthy. This is the second judgment. The third judgment, Revelation 20, 4 through 6. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast in his image and had not received the mark on the forehead and their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And you also see 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Third judgment, during the thousand years, the saints review the history of what has transpired in the lives of the lost and the angels that are fallen and judge God's actions as to why some have been saved and why these have not and confirm through examination of evidence that every lost individual is lost by their persistent refusal to stay away and reject all the healing God has offered. Third judgment. Fourth judgment. Revelation 20, 11 and 12. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in the books. And what book was this? The book of life. Some people's names are retained and some are erased out of this book. And if you read again, what is written in this book? The names. There's multiple Bible passages. The names written in the book of life. Name written in the book of life. Name written in the book of life. What's the name? Character. Character. That's exactly right. And what determines your character? Choice. And the, yes, choices and the prime first number one choice, who you trust. Have you surrendered your individual self, your heart, your soul to Jesus in trust? Open yourself. That's the first and most important choice. After that, there may be battles with individual temptations that we struggle with, but if we remain surrendered in trust, it may take, we may not get the victory with the first or second or third temptation, but if we stay in trust, we eventually get the victories. But that isn't ultimately what determines it. What determines it is the trust of our individual self to Christ. Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty three through 37, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the, mouth, uh, overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings forth the evil the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment. For every careless word they have spoken... For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. What did Jesus just say the words are evidence of? The heart, the character. It's ultimately who you've chosen to become. Are you a wheat or are you a weed? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Have you surrendered to Christ and been reborn to love God and others, or have you hardened yourself in fear and selfishness? 
That's ultimately what the judgment is at the end. So the end of the thousand years, the New Jerusalem's on earth, and the gates of the New Jerusalem are open, and the wicked are raised, and they set about making implements of war, and during this period of time, no one comes in. Their actions reveal what they prefer, and then they experience God's unveiled self, infinite truth and love flow out over the earth, and they all acknowledge that they were wrong and Christ is right. And they all fall on a knee and acknowledge that, but the compelling weight of evidence and truth, they can't deny it any longer. But then they get up after their acknowledgement and they still march on the city to try and destroy it, again showing that truth has no impact on them. There's no conversion. There's no transformation. There's no love for God and others. There's only a desire to conquer and destroy. Selfishness. I, you can see this in the world around us right now, folks. You saw this in the trial of Christ when after the divinity flashed through humanity and he attaches an ear onto a man that they still arrested him and crucified him. Evidence doesn't have an impact on those who've destroyed the faculties that love and are sensitive to truth. And then all the saved in the city are watching this evidence and are making a final judgment about God. That there was nothing more he could have done. That all were lost by their own free will choice. No human law courts in any of the judgments, folks. That's a lie of the Roman penal legal infection of Christianity. And anybody who's teaching penal substitution theology with a human law court is teaching the infection that we are to remove ourselves from to come back into a true trust relationship from God. It's an obstacle to the final message of mercy. It's an obstacle to the three angels' message. This penal legal lie. And then the wrath of God, Paul describes in verse 24, 26, and 28, what it is. Therefore God gave them up. Therefore God let them go. And what happens when God finally gives them what they freely chose? When the life giver lets go, what happens? What happens if a parent is holding the hand of a rebellious child who has jumped off the edge of a tall building? And the child is screaming and fighting and kicking. And every time the parent pulls the child back onto the roof, the child jumps again and again and again and again. And what happens if after infinite amount of attempts, the parent finally lets the child go and have their free will rebellious way? What happens to the child? The child dies. Why does the child die? Does the child die because the parent is angry and and upset and, and uses power to kill them? No. Because they're out of harmony with the law upon which life operates upon. That's right. And that's called in the Bible God's wrath. God letting go. From the book Hard Sayings of the Bible by University Press, this is a well-done doc, uh, commentary. Uh, they have uh, comments here on Romans this very section of Romans, Romans 1, 18 through 32, starting on page 542. In some sense, God's wrath is built into the very structure of created reality. In rejecting God's structure and establishing our own, in violating God's intention for the creation and substituting our own intentions, we cause our own disintegration. The human condition, which Paul describes in Romans 1, 18 through 32, is not something caused by God. The phrase revealed from heaven, where heaven is a typical Jewish substitute for the word God, 
does not depict some kind of divine intervention, but rather the inevitability of human debasement, which results when God's will built into the created order is violated. That's design law, when you violate design law. Since the created order has its origin in God, Paul can say that the wrath of God is now constantly being revealed from heaven. It is revealed in the fact that the rejection of God's truth, that is, the truth about God's nature and will, leads to futile thinking, idolatry, perversion of God-intended sexuality, and related and relational moral brokenness. The expression, God gave them over, or handed them over, which appears three times in these passages, 40, uh, 24, 26, and 28, supports the idea that the sinful perversion of human existence, though resulting from human decisions, is to be understood ultimately as God's punishment, which we, in freedom, bring upon ourselves. Notice, they got it exactly right. The punishment of God is his stepping back and stopping the restraint of the consequence he's held at bay that our own actions bring upon us. One more paragraph. In light of these reflections, the common notion that God punishes or blesses in direct proportion to our sinfulness or good deeds cannot be maintained. God loves us with an everlasting love, but the rejection of that love separates us from his life-giving power. The result is disintegration and death. Do you know that penal substitution theology rejects and denies this perspective? Penal substitution theology, accepting the lie that God's law works like human law, teaches the lie that justice requires the sovereign to use his power to inflict punishment and kill, and thus death does not come from separating from God naturally. It comes as an infliction from the sovereign to torture and kill those. Makes God into everything Satan alleges him to be. And the true Christian must reject it. The last paragraph says, especially in, the day in, in, the, in a day and age in which many humans have come to worship the creation rather than the creator, how crucial that Christian education in the arts and sciences always work from an assumption that God is the creator and sustainer and not the assumption that, uh, of a godless origin. I kind of just jumped ahead there. I did not like the use of the phrase from the assumption that God is creator. I did not like it at all. Because I do not believe it is an assumption. I believe the evidence is overwhelming, testable, reproducible, compelling, and that it, we do not assume that God exists, that we know, based on the irrefutable evidence, that he exists. And the evidence of all scientific evidence that is, that is testable and reproducible, all of it is consistent with God creating life, and all of it refutes a godless origin. There isn't any evidence out there that, that, that supports the godless theory. All of it refutes it, if you actually look at what's testable and reproducible. Complexity coming from chaos, all on its own, with no intelligent input. Or complexity coming from chaos with intelligent input. That's a testable theory. And it's reproducible and consistent every time it requires intelligent input to get complexity out of chaos. On it. You can't get it on its own. Life coming from non-living matter or life coming from other living matter. Again, the whole world is teeming with life, but it only comes from other living organisms. It never comes out of non-living matter, ever. Not once. Not once has it been demonstrated. Yet, people still teach that lie. 
Things adapt and change over millions of years through mutation of the DNA code, or things adapt and change from generation to generation through epigenetics. And there are no mutations that actually advance or improve the species. Again, science confirms the biblical model, that it's epigenetic changes that change things, and mutations are always damaging and harmful. They're never beneficial to the species, never advances. But people still believe and teach. So, so let me put, put back and say it this way. As people who believe in God and creation, we stand on solid scientific evidence. And we must reject the lie that to believe in God is blind faith, is an assumption, is not scientific, is unreasonable. And we must start speaking clearly that those who believe a godless origins are the ones who have no evidence, uh, make assumptions, and operate on blind faith that deny the scientific evidence. They're not scientific. I have not had one person yet who's been able to refute what I just said scientifically. What they do is they evade. They will say things like, yes, you can't get organization out of chaos on its own in anything that we can test because it takes so much time. We requires billions of years for that to form, and we don't have time to show that in a lab. Think that through. Yes? Evolutionists themselves talk about the Precambrian explosion yeah. that you were just talking about right their new definition of you know the or the, the modern def, definition of evolution is billions and it takes just an amazingly it's long yeah time. and yet in the cambrian rocks there was all the there was nothing and the next layer there was an explosion of various life forms mm-hmm so the next, on Monday's lesson, talks about the beauty of holiness and asks what it is. I, we went through this seven or no, nine, ten weeks ago. Anybody remember the beauty of holiness, what it is? Nine or ten weeks ago, we went through this. Holiness is a word that in, in Christianity and much of religion is almost mystical and magical. It has very little uh, real-world meaning to people. It's like, what does it mean? We just know God's holy. He's holy. We just know it. It's almost magical. In its de- Seriously. But it shouldn't be. It's very practical if you understand what holiness really is. It should be expected. Yes. Holiness, I will put my terms on it, is perfect harmony with God. And perfect harmony with God restores us to perfect harmony with his design laws. And perfect restoration to his design laws restores us to perfect health. Holiness is perfect healthiness in all domains. In every aspect, biological, psychological, relational, physical, every way you can be healthy, perfectly in harmony with every attribute of God. That's what holiness ultimately is. And the unavoidable outcome of health is? God's restoration within us, trusting him. Happiness. Oh, it's happiness, that's right, yes. And the consequence of health, healthiness is happiness, that's right. It's the byproduct. So, out of a book called Acts of the Apostles, yes? Not to rain on anyone's parade, but you know, we all choose when we write books or chapters or whatever, and, and we're limited by what we have, we're coming from. Looking up Psalms 96.9 in multiple translations, more than half of them will talk about clothing, not about the way we're worshiping God, other than 
So Psalms 96.9, um, how is that relevant to where we are? Link us in. I don't know what that says. We'll worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Okay, there we go. Thank you. And so I think it's dangerous to take a text that has maybe uncertain terminology or translations because of the wording. When it says uncertain in Hebrew or whatever, we shouldn't choose our, our religion based on a text here or there that has questionable translation. So we don't have to. We can just ask the question, do we believe holiness is beautiful? Yes. Well then, we don't have to quibble about the text. Holiness is beautiful. So what is the beauty of holiness? What is it? The perfection of God. And thus, as we're restored back to his perfection, it's beautiful. Anything that deviates from God's design damages, injures, causes defects, uh, causes uh, pathology, and that's not beautiful. Pathology is not beautiful. It's not. It's ugly. If you've seen certain disease states, and I will tell you, the most beautiful person on earth today, if you stood her up against, her or him up against Adam and Eve, they would not be beautiful. They wouldn't be. We would see that our, 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 our eyes are so conditioned to the world around us that we think things are beautiful when they're really ugly. You should read in the book um, Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White's description of the earth prior to the flood and after the flood. And how the mountains we see with the ragged peaks and people go, oh, look at how beautiful the Rockies are and so forth. She says they correspond to bones to the body. If you saw an orthopedic surgeon back here, uh, how many times when you see a child come in and the femur sticking out through the flesh, do you go, how beautiful, how beautiful? I bet you've never done that, have you? No. 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 It's not beautiful to see the bone stick out of the body, is it? But that's what we think when we see, see the earth today, that these, these bones that correspond to the bones of the body that give the structure to the stability of what the earth got, as God designed it, we think that's beautiful. We're so, our, our perspectives are so corrupted to what real beauty is. So, oh boy, so much I want to get through still. Uh, there's some quotes, and I'm going to skip this quote. I'm going to go on to the quote out of um, um, Christian Education, um, and, and, and I'll read this. It says, uh, at this time, the church is to put on her beautiful garments, Christ our Righteousness. This is the author here. Beautiful garment. What's describing? Well, the same author says in Christ's Object Lessons in another place, when we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought in captivity to him. We live his life. Notice everything's happening inside us, transforming us, renewing us. This is what it means to be clothed with the garments of his righteousness. The church is to put on these beautiful garments. This would be beautiful to see people living like this, right? There are clear, decided distinctions to be restored and exemplified to the world in holding aloft the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The beauty of holiness is to appear in its native luster in contrast with the deformity and darkness of the disloyal, those who have revolted from the law of God. What is this talking about? What law? List of rules? Uh, right days of worship? Right ritualistic ways to be baptized? Or is it talking about how we treat others? The character, love for God and love for other people, how we function. This is what the beauty of holiness is, the, the beauty of holy character. And uh, I'm going to just move on very quickly. So we talk about, oh, and this author went on to say, um, his authority should be kept distinct and plain before the world, and no laws are to be acknowledged that come in collision with the laws of Jehovah. <laughs> let that breathe. Well, yeah, let that. I'm just let that 
breathe in our society right now. No laws are to be acknowledged that come into the collision with the laws of Jehovah. What about laws of man that restrict religious liberty, that restrict church attendance, where we share the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring people to a saving knowledge and eternal life? What if those laws, what if the laws of man restrict religious liberty and the spreading of the gospel to bring eternal life in order so that we cannot spread COVID-19 and protect human life? Are such restrictions on our religious liberty in harmony with the laws of God? Oh, I'm sure they must be because we have a Bible example of how the Jews restricted association with lepers to prevent the disease. And and we shouldn't. And so there's a model. They didn't associate with lepers because they didn't want to spread a disease. That's Wait, wait a second. Wait, they actually don't model Christ, do they? They didn't associate with anyone. Wait, wait, wait. They, They actually model the evils of the world trying to stop the spread of the leprous disease by not associating with those lepers and not fulfilling their gospel and commission to love those lepers and minister to them. Wait a minute. Hmm. How many, how easily has Christianity been duped by the state to value temporal life more than eternal life? What is more important to the Christian? 75, 100 years of life here or life eternal? What if we exchange our eternal life for this temporal life? Good deal. Or value our temporal life more than the eternal life of our neighbor? I'm afraid I'm going to get COVID. Let's close the church. Let's not minister to the godless in our community until COVID is cleared up. How many people have died in America or around the world during the last 10 months who could have come to the gospel message had the churches been functioning normally and people been inviting people to their churches or going and doing community gospel ministry that are no longer doing the gospel ministry and people didn't even have the opportunity to hear. Oh, that's okay. Romans 1, they're without excuse. They could have learned from nature. Should we support the laws of man when they restrict our religious liberty? In order to stop COVID, understand COVID is a fairly, almost, almost completely, but fairly benign disease. 99.5, of people who get it get over it. Less than 1% of people die from, less than a half a percent of people die from this. Bubonic plague during the dark ages, they killed 50 million people. 100% of people who get bubonic plague die if they don't get antibiotics. That disease really, really is a, a bad disease. This disease is not like that. The problem in the world today is not COVID. The problem in the world today is the fear that has been infecting the hearts of people to compromise love for others and be so easily manipulated by a controlling governments that they compromise their ultimate gospel mission based on fear. Either fear for themselves or... But no, it's love for others. I don't want to give them this disease. True holiness is wholeness in the service of God. This is the condition of the true Christian. Christ asks for an unreserved consecration for undivided service. He demands the heart, the mind, the soul, the strength. Self is not to be cherished. He who lives to himself is not a Christian. 
Would this include being so afraid of contracting a disease that we isolate ourselves from doing Christian ministry? What is holiness? Restoration of the law of love in the heart and mind. Such that, as Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Notice design law here, how reality works. If you love only those who love you and reward, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brother, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'm going to suggest to you this time in human history, what's happening in the world right now is the roar of the lion is spiking up fear. Fear, fear, fear. Fear of loss of job. Fear of loss of business. Fear of loss of income. Fear of loss of health. Fear of loss of a loved one. Fear, fear, fear. And you have to decide, are you going to act on fear or are you going to act on love? It is this time that we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And that is we love our enemies that we can be sons of our Father in heaven. And we act in love and take actions that are love-based. You asked about masks. My view is that any intervention that does not interfere with the gospel commission is righteous and is okay to do. Wearing masks, that doesn't interfere. Washing your hands more. Stop handshaking. Stop sharing magazines and pens in the lobby. Uh, cleaning the counters more often. Voluntary mask wearing. Voluntary distancing, putting more distance between people at events. These types of things, all okay to do. But telling people they cannot meet, they cannot assemble, they cannot minister. You cannot go visit your sick loved one, your mother or father who's sick in the hospital, had surgery in the ICU. You can't, you can't be with them after their, their hip replacement. You can't be in the hospital with them. You can't go visit your loved one in the nursing home. This is damaging. It's wrong. It's a violation of the law of love. It's not helpful. It's hurtful to the people. We shouldn't support it. We shouldn't give in to it. Many things we can do. But there's many things we should have protested, and we should protest because they're wrong. Think about the thief on the cross who accepted Jesus Christ at his last moments. Did he win or did he lose? How about if he was ministered to by somebody who carried the COVID virus and accepted Jesus, contracted COVID, and died three days later? Win or lose. Do you see the world's perspective is not the perspective of God? We're going to go into Wednesday. It talks about foolishness and foolishness of the world. And I give the example of the obvious one that we all know. The more you give, the more you receive. That's foolishness of the world. The more you hoard, the more you take, the more you get. That's the world's wisdom. But if you understand the law of love, the more love you give away, the more love you receive. That's how it works. You can't get more love by hoarding, by taking. You get less. And thus, God's wisdom doesn't make sense to the world. That's an obvious one. But now that the election is over, I have some thoughts I want to share that I have had for more than a year that I have been holding. Because the lesson brings us up. If you're reading the lesson, it talks about culture and things done in your culture that are harmful. 
and wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of, of, of God. And, and I have held this because I'd, I, if I'd have done this before the election, people would have accused me of being political. Be, but you can't accuse me of being political now because the election's over and, you, and you're not going to use this politically. This is to be used for discernment growth, to stop participating in the world's foolishness and learn how to discern and think. And I saw some serious foolishness in this last year coming from Christians who were writing and blogging and making videos about judging um, people based on their character for office. Why is this foolishness? Because every one of these people that I read or watched did not know any of the candidates personally. They had no personal relationship with them. They never even met them. Therefore, they have no knowledge of their character. They think they do. It's foolishness. Judge not that you be not judged. For the same measure you judge others will be judged against you. What were they basing their judgments on? They were basing their judgments on public persona. What you see in the public specter and sphere. Not from the personal experience of knowing their heart. And the public personas, you can't judge character on public persona. Just public reports, even public reports of actions that are documentable. Let me give examples. Consider the way some take the public reports of Scripture of God's actions in the Old Testament. God's own words where he has railed at people and threatened people. And they take those reports... And they make a characterization of God with terrible, big bully character. And they've got biblical sound evidence to make their case, don't they? But the problem is, the people doing that, get, hear me now, folks, don't know God. Understand me. The people making these uh, so-called wise declarations about someone's character don't know the people. They just see public persona, public behavior, public reports. And many of the reports coming are through media outlets that have biases and slant and give you partial reporting. But even if you hear the person themselves speaking, you hear God thundering in many places and threatening in the Old Testament. But until you know God, you don't really know his character. And when you know his character, you go back and read all those stories and you don't realize that actually every one of those things were an act of immense grace and love. What, how beautiful he looks as he, as he does that. Because you understand now the context of what's happening. But for another example, besides God himself, just think of the public persona of Bill Cosby prior to his trial and conviction. He had a public persona that almost everyone adored and thought was so, that we would love to have him entertain your children. But the evidence that came out of trial showed something quite distinctly different that had been going on for decades. Unless we know the person, you can't make a judgment about character. Well, some might say, hold on, though. We have confirmed sins visiting prostitutes. And we can look at the visitation of prostitutes and we can judge his character based on that. No, actually, you can't. This is the wisdom that is foolishness to God. This is the foolishness of the world. Just imagine, if you want to use that type of wisdom, if we had some known historical proven facts of a murderer. Would you want to follow that man as your leader? So when Moses shows up to lead you out of Egypt, you would say, you're a proven and known murderer. 
You have bad character. You cannot be someone God would choose. Therefore, we will not follow you. This idea that you can look to someone's past sins and know their current character is foolishness. Foolishness. How about David, Bathsheba, and Uriah? When was David the most righteous in his life? Before or after the Uriah incident? It was after the Uriah incident that he was most righteous. Because it was after that incident that brought him to true repentance with true heart change. But we can point to that and say he's untrustworthy. No, that's when he became a man after God's own heart. It is foolishness to think you can point to someone's historic sins and know their character. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. I I just want to say, people, I saw so many people being manipulated by this foolishness. How about, okay, all right, we won't look at their sins. We will just look at their interpersonal style, how they treat people right now, today. And we've seen in public someone being blunt, direct, uh, no empathy for others, says things that are hurtful, comes across as rude, even mean. That's evidence of bad character. Well, not necessarily. If you don't know them personally, you still don't know their character. What if the person we're talking about has Asperger's syndrome with a high IQ? Perfectly normal. I'll tell you what that looks like. High IQ with Asperger's syndrome. Perfectly normal verbal skills, but no empathy skills at all. They're actually obtuse to the feelings of other people. They're blunt, they're direct, and they constantly offend people socially. Constantly, even when their heart is only intending to help them. I have many Asperger's patients that I see that have good hearts, that really care about people, and they constantly have interpersonal difficulties because they're blunt, they're rude, they're offensive, they just say, because they just say things. They just say things the way they see them. And do you know most of people in our society can't take blunt truth? They're offended. They get hurt. And not only that, they're going for... The Asperger's folks are very, very task-oriented. They're not focused on relationship. They don't see relationship. They see mission, and they're focused on achieving mission. Did you ever see the television program Bones? Temperance Brennan was depicted, if you watch the series, as a very caring, compassionate person, but she was depicted as someone consistent with Asperger's syndrome, and she was constantly offending people because she would say things just socially inappropriate, constantly and out of context that was offensive. So how do we make decisions? It's wise versus foolish. Would be based on evidence of their ability to fulfill the tasks for the role that they're assigned rather than their style and demeanor. For instance, I have a patient with Asperger's who's a pharmacist and is extremely efficient, consistently in all of the jobs that she's held, has been the highest efficiency in, per, in turning around prescriptions, the no, most number per shift, and lowest error rates of any pharmacist that has worked. Highly proficient at doing this. Yet, she consistently gets terrible interpersonal ratings and has been let go from multiple jobs for being offensive to coworkers and customers because she's blunt and direct. Whereas other pharmacists who are high, high on the interpersonal skills, very charming, very compassionate, have made multiple medication errors and filled prescriptions in, in, incorrectly, but they get retained in the job. Who do you want filling your prescription? How about you have a, a heart surgeon 
that's like this. And the heart surgeon is like my patient who has the lowest infection rate, shortest hospital stays, best outcomes, less days on ventilator of any surgeon in the city. But he's rude, he's offensive, and perhaps he committed adultery 25 years ago. There's another heart surgeon in town who also is an elder in his church and he's kind and he's generous and he's compassionate and he's easy going and he's loyal to his wife, but he has had multiple people die and high infection rates and high... Who do you want to do the surgery on you or your loved one? Do you see the foolishness? The foolishness of this world. So what should one make a decision on in a public situation like that? My is what I just said. The evidence of their ability to achieve the tasks for which they're assigned. That's who I would go with. But so many people in our society make decisions based on how the other person, hear me now, makes them feel. And that is the pathway to the devil's deception. James chapter 1. No one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted. We're dragged away and enticed by our own Feelings, evil feelings. The devil plays on our feelings. He is a master of manipulation, but he has no truth on his side. And he takes facts. Understand, facts are not truths. See, it may be a fact that my patient speaks bluntly and comes across rude, but it is not a truth that she's a rude person. She's actually a kind person. She has Asperger's and doesn't even see those things. It's a lie to accuse her of being a rude person. Her character is caring. But her style sometimes comes across that way. And you can't know the truth without knowing the person. So I say this so that many of us can practice in real-world situation now using your God-given reasoning skills to evaluate evidences and stop embracing the systems of this world. Because the Lord is coming soon, folks, and if it's possible, the very elect would be deceived. And we don't want that to be possible, so we must know for ourselves the truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the, the King of, of, of heaven, the Lord of hosts, and the creator of all reality, whose government operates on truth, love, and freedom. We ask that your spirit will give us these discernment skills and give us opportunities to practice them and apply them so that we can grow into the full stature of sons and daughters and that we can love those in our community, even those who are not loving us in return. We pray in your holy name. Amen.